Hello, my name is Ayali Peña, and this is the Landhand Readings, Episode 1. The men who drew up the Constitution in Philadelphia during the summer of 1787 had a vivid Calvinistic sense of human evil and damnation, and believed with Hobbes that men are selfish and contentious. They were men of affairs, merchants, lawyers, planter businessmen, speculators, investors, having seen human nature on display in the marketplace, the courtroom, the legislative chamber, and in every secret path and alleyway where wealth and power were courted. They felt they knew in all its fraidly. To them, a human being was an atom of self-interest. They did not believe in man, but they did believe in the power of a good political constitution to control them. For the first paragraph, my analyzation was that men believed that the writers of the Constitution did not see people as human beings. They saw them as a person they could hold power against and could control over. This may be an abstract notion to ascribe to practical men, but it follows the language that the fathers themselves used. General Knox, for example, wrote in disgust to Washington after Shays' Rebellion, that Americans were, after all, men, actual men, possessing all turbulent passions belonging to that animal. Throughout the secret discussions at the Constitutional Convention, it was clear that the distrust of man was first and foremost a distrust of the common man and democratic rule. Shays' Rebellion was a rebellion done by citizens that were against the aggressive taxes that the states were enforcing. They continued to tax individuals and tradings to many citizens that were already in debt, which caused them to rebel against the government. And yet, there was another side to the picture. The fathers were intellectual heirs of the 17th century. English republicanism with its opposition to arbitrary rule and faith in popular sovereignty. If they feared the advance of democracy, they also had misgivings about the turning to the extreme right. Having recently experienced a bitter revolutionary struggle with an external power beyond their control, they were in no mood to follow Hobbes to his conclusion that any kind of government must be accepted in order to avert the anarchy and terror of a state of nature. The writers of the Constitution did not agree with Hobbes over accepting random governments. They wanted to pick what would be best because they did not think that anyone would turn away their form of government and bring about disorder. Unwilling to turn their backs on republicanism, the fathers also wished to avoid violating the prejudices of the people. Notwithstanding the oppression and injustice experienced among us from democracy, said George Mason, the genius of the people is in our favor of it, and the genius of the people must be consulted. Mason admitted that we have been too democratic, but feared that we should incautiously run into the opposite extreme. James Madison, who has quite rightfully been called the philosopher of the Constitution, told delegates, it seems indispensable that the mass of citizens should not be without a voice in making the laws which they are to obey and in choosing the magistrates who are to administer them. James Wilson, the outstanding jurist of the age, later appointed the Supreme Court by Washington, said again and again that the ultimate power of government must of necessity reside in the people. This the fathers commonly accepted, for if government did not proceed from the people, from what other source could it legitimately come? To adopt any other premise not only would be 
inconsistent with everything they had said against the British rule in the past, but would open the gates to an extreme concentration of power in the future. In order for us to have the true government we wish for, then some power needs to go to the people. If we don't have people's needs and wishes in the government, why did we go through the trouble of becoming the United States? James Madison believes it's best to have people be of an influence in the government for us to function. If the masses were turbulent and unregenerate, and yet if government must be founded upon their suffrage and consent, what could a constitution maker do? One thing that the fathers did not propose to do because they thought it was impossible was to change the nature of man to conform with a more ideal system. They were inordinarily confident that they knew what a man always had been and what he always would be. The 18th century mind had great faith in universals. It was too much to expect that vice could be checked by virtue. The fathers relied instead upon checking vice with vice. Madison once objected during the convention that Governor Morris was forever inculcating the utter political depravity of men and necessity of opposing one vice and interest to another vice and interest. And yet Madison himself wrote Federalist Number 51 later set forth an excellent statement of the same thesis. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men. The great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. They often believed we would never change, and wondered how the Constitution would work by consent and having the right to vote. How could it really be done with our beliefs on men? Though it didn't help that we checked vice with vice and not vice with virtue, Madison wrote, we cannot control other men before having the government control the governed and then oblige for the government to control itself. If in a state that lacked constitutional balance, one class or one interest gained control, they believed it would surely plunder all other interests. The fathers, of course, were especially fearful that the poor would plunder the rich, but most of them would probably have admitted that the rich, unrestrained, would also plunder the poor. In practical form, therefore, the quest of the fathers reduced primarily to a search for a constitutional device that would force various interests to check and control one another. Among those who favored the federal constitution, three such devices were distinguished. The fathers were scared over how a class or interest could basically overtake another. They feared the rich and poor the most through these situations. They wanted a constitutional device to basically help interests or groups of interests balance one another through checking, to help each control one another to resolve problems that they feared the most. The first of these was the advantage of a federated government in maintaining order against uprisings or majority rule. In a single state, a faction might arise and take complete control by force. But if the states were bound in a federation, the central government could step in and prevent it. The second advantage 
of good constitutional government resided in the mechanism of representation itself. In a small direct democracy, the unstable passions of the people would dominate lawmaking, but a representative government, as Madison said, would refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens. The third advantage of the government was that each element should be given its own house of legislator, and over both houses there should be a set, capable, strong, and impartial executive arm with the veto power. The split assembly would contain within itself an organic check and would be capable of self-control under the governance of the executive. The whole system was to be capped by an independent judiciary. The inevitable tendency of the rich and the poor to plunder each other would be kept in hand. It is ironical that the Constitution, which Americans venerate so deeply, is based upon a political theory that at one crucial point stands direct antithesis to the mainstream of American democratic faith. Modern American folklore assumes that democracy and liberty are all but identical, and when democratic writers that take trouble to make the distinction, they usually assume that democracy is necessary to liberty. But the Founding Fathers thought that the liberty with which they were most concerned was menaced by democracy. In their minds, liberty was linked not to democracy, but to property. They believed through the first device that if a faction ever got out of hand, they could control with a central government. The second device helped enforce the idea of a representative government as it would bring elected men to sort through the public views of the people. The third device that fathers believed in having was houses in the legislature that could be capable, strong, and have the veto power. It would all be under one judiciary. It is ironic that many times democratic writers believed democracy is necessary for liberty, when the founding fathers believed it was threatened when linked to democracy. They believed liberty was better linked towards property. What did the fathers mean by liberty? What did Jay mean when he spoke of the charms of liberty? Or Madison when he declared that to destroy liberty in order to destroy factions would be a remedy worse than the disease. Certainly the men who met at Philadelphia were not interested in extending liberty to those classes in America. The Negro slaves and the indentured servants who were in most need of it for slavery was recognized in the organic structure of the Constitution and in Dentured servitude was no concern of the convention. Nor was the regard of the delegates for civil liberties any too tender. It was the opponents of the Constitution who were most active in demanding such vital liberties, such as freedom of religion, freedom of speech and press, jury trial, due process, and protection from unreasonable searches and seizures. These guarantees had to be incorporated in the first ten amendments because the convention neglected to put them in the original document. Turning to economic issues, it was not freedom of trade in the modern sense that the fathers were striving for. Although they did not believe in impending trade unnecessarily, they felt that the failure to regulate it was one of the central weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation, and they stood closer to the mercantilists than to Adam Smith. Again, liberty to them did not mean free access to the nation's unappropriated wealth. It was, at least 14 of them were land speculators. They did not believe in the right to squatter to occupy unused land, but rather in the right of absentee owner or speculator to preempt it. Although slavery and indentured slaves were still around at the time, they didn't really care. 
They looked over them in order to help the people who were upset and demanding other forms of freedom that were not listed in the original document. So any person that was against the Constitution was one of the main focuses that they were working on in this convention. Though many of them did not agree with some of the views economic-wise, some men themselves were land speculators and believed that rather than giving free land, to hold it for owners who weren't there. The liberties that the constitutionalists hoped to gain were chiefly negative. They wanted freedom from physical uncertainty and irregularities in the currency, from trade wars among the states from economic discrimination by more powerful foreign governments, from attack on the creditor class or on property, from popular insurrection. They aim to create a government that acts as an honest broker among a variety of property interests, giving them all protection from their common enemies and preventing them from becoming too powerful. The convention was a fraternity of types of absentee ownership. All property should be permitted to have its proportionate voice in government. Individual property interests might have been sacrificed at times, but only for the community of property interests. Freedom of property would result in liberty for men, perhaps not for all men, but at least for all worthy men. Because men have different faculties and abilities, the fathers believe they acquire different amounts of property. To protect property is only to protect men in the exercise of their natural fa faculties. Among the many liberties, therefore, freedom to hold and dispose of property is paramount. Democracy, unchecked rule by the masses, is sure to bring arbitrary redistribution of property, destroying the very essence of liberty. They wanted the government to arrange the transactions between many property interests. The people in terms wanted protection from common enemies. For founding fathers believed that freedom of property meant liberty to men who were truly worthy. Depending on your abilities, you were granted some property as it was your way of protection to the founding fathers. The founding fathers believed that the freedom to hold and dispose of property was the most important liberty than anything else. A cardinal tenet in the faith of men who made the constitution was the belief that democracy can never be more than a transitional stage in government, that it always evolves into either a tyranny, the rule of a rich demagogue who has patronized the mob, or an aristocracy, the original leaders of the democratic elements. What encouraged the fathers about their own era, however, was the broad dispersion of landed property. The small land-owning farmers had been troublesome in the recent years, but there was a general conviction under a properly made constitution a modest vivendi could be worked out with them. The possession of moderate plots of property presumably gave them a sufficient stake in society to be safe and responsible citizens under the restraints of a balanced government. Influence in governments would be proportionate and property merchants and great landholders would be dominant. But small property owners would have an independent and far more negligible voice. It was politic as well as just said Madison, that the interests and rights of every class should be duly represented and understood in the public councils. And John Adams declared that there could be no free government with a democratical branch in the Constitution. At the very beginning, contemporary opponents of the Constitution foresaw an apocalyptic destruction of local government and popular institutions. While conservative Europeans of the old regimen thought young American Republic was a dangerous leftist experiment, modern critical scholarship, which reached a high point in Charles A. 
Beards, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States, started a new turn in debate. The antagonism long latent between philosophy of the Constitution and the philosophy of American democracy again came into the open. Professor Beard's work appeared in 1913 at the peak of the progressive era, when the muckraking fever was still high. Some readers tended to conclude from his findings that the fathers were selfish reactionaries who did not deserve their high place in American esteem. Still more recently, other writers inverting this logic have used Beard's facts to praise the fathers for their opposition to democracy as an argument for returning again to the idea of a republic. For the three paragraphs I just read, Constitution makers believe basically that our form of democracy wasn't going to last, but rather glisten over to something terrible over time. Their problem was that they believed in depending on how much land you own meant your voice in the government, which meant that many small landowners had no voice. Just like nowadays, with small businesses during this pandemic that aren't as well off as the nationwide slash global businesses. Many began to turn on the constitutionaries, showing the negatives and how they don't really care what, what they do, while others do the complete opposite. Like in terms of today, with voting nearing us, many journalists hate slash praise candidates they prefer. In fact, the father's image of themselves as moderate Republicans standing between political extremes was quite accurate. They were impelled by class motives more than pietistic writers like to admit, but they were also controlled, as Professor Beard himself has recently emphasized by statements like sense of moderation and scrupulously Republican philosophy. Any attempt to however tear their ideas out of the 18th century context is sure to make them seem starkly reactionary. Consider, for example, the favorite maxim of John Jay, the people who own the country ought to govern it. To the fathers, this was simply a swift amoxic statement of the stake in society theory of political rights, a modern conservative position under 18th century conditions of property distribution in America. Under modern property relations, this maxim demands a drastic restriction of the base of political power. A large portion of modern middle class and it it is the strength of this class upon which balanced government depends its property lists and urban proletariat which the fathers so greatly feared is almost one half of the population further the separation of ownership from control that has come with a corporation deprives jay's maxim of the 20th century meaning even for many propertied people the 600,000 stockholders of American Telephone and Telegraph Company not only do not acquire political power by virtue of their stock ownership, but they do not even acquire economic power. They cannot control their own company. From a humanistic standpoint, there is a serious dilemma in the philosophy of the fathers, which derives from the conception of man. They thought man was a creature of rapacious self-interest, and yet they wanted him to be free, free in essence to contend, to engage in the umpired strife, to use property to get property. They accepted the mercantile image of life as an internal battleground and assumed the hobbyism war of each against all. They did not propose to put an end to this war, but merely to stabilize it and make it less murderous. They had no hope and they offered none for any ultimate organic change in the way men conduct themselves. The result was that while they thought self-interest the most dangerous and unbrookable quality of men 
they necessarily underwrote it in trying to control it. For the last two paragraphs, I analyze that nowadays many companies and stockholders do not have a say in government or influence it in any way. But before we can fully judge the Founding Fathers, we have to understand at the time their beliefs are very different regarding many situations. But in all, they did want a government that was better for us than the British rule we had before. Thank you for listening.